Welcome back to another Palace of Glittering Delights. It's infrequent, and that's what makes it fun. As in the opening credits, I am Andrew Leyland. It's nice to be here. How are you? Are you doing okay today? I like to think that you are. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to this, would you? Or maybe you're having a bad day, and that's why you're listening to this. Maybe I lift the heart. I don't think I lift anybody's heart. Um, welcome to the show. So weird doing this on your own. There's nobody to, to banter with. It's still strange. Still unusual. Um, anyway, what's this episode about? I hear you ask in unison, all four of you. Uh, well, I recently completed an episode of this show that attempts to explain why the incredible and often unwarranted hatred of these Star Wars prequel movies was becoming tiresome by launching an impassioned defence of Revenge of the Sith and even compared it to the novel by Matthew Stoven and attempt to show that maybe these films weren't the work of the devil nor did they piss all over your childhood. Watching and reading Sith in preparation for that show made me like them more and gave me a greater appreciation for what Lucas was trying to do. In that show, I made a few potentially disparaging remarks about Episode 1, The Phantom Menace, and Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, which I felt, when I listened to it back, kind of undercut what I was trying to do. You three listeners have have kindly not mentioned that, which I was very appreciative of. To that end, though, and the largely positive reaction to that show, I thought looking at Attack of the Clones would be an interesting exercise. Attack of the Clones is an unsung chapter in the Star Wars saga. The sheer hype associated with The Phantom Menace meant that it was virtually impossible to disassociate that film from the largely negative reaction. But Attack of the Clones' release and reception was more mooted. Oh, it was still accompanied by the blockbuster marketing and merchandise campaign and all the attendant hoopla associated with a major movie nowadays, but people seemed happy to let this film be released as just another movie and not a major event. Attack of the Clones wasn't even the biggest film of its release year, 2002, although it grossed a huge amount of money, and it seems to be largely the forgotten chapter in the prequel trilogy. Well, I'm here to address that balance, bring balance to the force, if you will. For me, Attack of the Clones was a fun flick, and I found that it improves in relation to the other chapters. As I've said in my Sith show, it's a little flabby around the midsection, but it's an absolutely stunning film to look at, a visually sumptuous movie. As before, I will be looking at the book in tandem with the film, seeing what the film edited out that the book left in, and comparing and contrasting each. Unlike with Sith, however, we begin with the novel. Written by R.A. Salvatore, the novelisation begins before the movie. Establishing some important character backstory we're only told about or is only implied in the film. Nearly 49 pages and almost four chapters of the book happen before the film takes place, and these are almost exclusively Padme and the Lars family scenes. Even then, it's another 20 pages before Obi-Wan and Anakin, here being used as the Starsky and Hutch of the Jedi, arrive on Coruscant. The Lars family material is a Star Wars version of Little House on the Prairie, or the Waltons, in that Klieg Lars and his wife Shimi, Anakin's mum from the first film, live out in the backwaters of Tatooine with Owen, Klieg's son, and Owen's girlfriend, Baru. 
It's all very down-at-home family drama stuff, fun in its own right, and it deepens Shimi as a character. We learn through the narrative what occurred between the Phantom Menace and here, but actually feel the bond between her and Klieg. There's also a hint of sadness to Shimi, and that while she does love Klieg Lars, she wonders did she marry him partly due to him having a son the same age as Anakin. This moment of doubt establishes Shimi wondering if she did the right thing with her own son and humanises her deeply. It also demonstrates how much Owen Lars thinks of Shimi. We never learn when Owen lost his mother, but it's clear that he thinks of Shimi as his mother, and he's incredibly loyal to family. It adds depth to the scenes in Star Wars where Owen is attempting to raise Luke. The fact that he loved Shimi and Luke is Shimi's grandson is reason enough to explain why Owen doesn't want anything to do with Obi-Wan or Anakin. The farm is threatened by Tusken Raiders, and Klieg is for teaching them all a lesson, splicing in some western to the family drama. Shimi going to pick mushrooms in the early morning when she knows Tusken Raiders around seems a little bit stupid, and of course, she's kidnapped. This results in a round-up-a-posse-western-style moment, where the farmers go to rescue her. This really sells the Lars family much better than the movie, aided by not having to watch Pernilla August's stilted performance. The attack on the sand people is seen in the book, and it's brutal and bloody, getting the point across that sand people are savage and unscrupulous. Placing a wire around the sensors, they decapitate a number of the farmers, and it's here that Klieg loses his leg in a rather bloody and violent scene. Padme Amidala also has a lot more backstory, largely, I suspect, because political intrigue is much more interesting to read about than actually watch, especially in a Star Wars flick. She seems much more a proponent of peace than Leia, but Leia grew up her entire life fighting a covert war, so the comparison isn't really apt. She is voting against the Republic creating a military, but is already dismayed by how many politicians are not voting for the good of the Republic, but for personal gain, implying the system is already broken and allowing the events of Revenge of the Sith to take place. The seeds of her feelings that her entire life has been about politics and duty are also planted. Padme visits her sister in these early chapters, who is married with a mortgage, two kids, a cat, yeah, and starts to feel broody over having children of her own. Again, these scenes deepen Padme's character. Salvatore cuts between Padme's battles with the Senate and the Lars family battling sand people very well, showing that both are fighting a similar war from encroaching fractions, but for different goals and reasons, although the ultimate outcome, the very way of life, is what's at stake. Salvatore also implies Captain Typho, a replacement for Captain Panaka after actor Hugh Quashie declined to reprise the role, loves Padme, a development that would be followed up in the Jedi Twilight series of books. Anakin's dreams about his mother are present and correct and open the book, although he dreams about his mother shattering into glass, and this sets up his prophetic dreams in Revenge of the Sith. It's at this point the film joins the action with the attempt on Senator Amidala's life. For some reason, the Blu-ray begins with two Fox fanfares, which is a little bit of overkill, but the opening crawl for Attack of the Clones sets out the changes since The Phantom Menace. A number of solar systems have declared their intention to leave the Republic. Depending on how many planets orbit a single star in the Star Wars universe, that could be a lot of systems. We are introduced to Count Dooku, leading a separatist movement, something I felt should really have been revealed in the movie. Dooku is also an exceptionally silly name when seen on screen, but thankfully he's played by Christopher Lee, whose remarkable stage presence will ensure this guy is a threat. The critical issue of voting for an army of the Republic or the Military Creation Act seems to get forgotten about in the film, but it's Padme's driving force in the novel. 
The opening shots of Attack of the Clones are gorgeous, emphasising George Lucas as a visual filmmaker. It's the first time as well the Star Wars film begins from underneath the planet and the camera pans up as opposed to down, giving us a look at the planet and the starships. Although it may be a valid complaint to say that taking three whole minutes of screen time to watch a starship land may be a little bit much. The attack on Amidala follows up on her having handmaids and decoys in episode one, so the fact that she was disguised as a trooper doesn't come out of left field for those that paid attention in the last film. We then rush straight to the scene where Padme is instructed to be protected by the Jedi. The novel adds a scene in the Senate here where Palpatine reveals that Padme has died, a scene that tips his hand in knowing a little too much, although no one picks up on it. One of the things the prequels do exceptionally well, and something I don't think they get near enough credit for, is portraying Palpatine's machinations. He's pulling the strings on everything, manipulating people into doing exactly what he wants, without them ever realising it. He's also clearly able to think on his feet. Had Padme been killed on the landing platform, this ploy with Obi-Wan wouldn't have been necessary. It's stretching credulity to believe the Jedi were in a room with the Sith Lord all this time, and not realise... Although the novel does address this discrepancy, both Yoda and Mace Windu have conversations about how the Force is in flux and it's maybe not as clear to them as it normally is, for whatever reason. Obi-Wan and Anakin then debut Obi-Wan sporting a really unfortunate mullet, and the banter between the two is playful and light. In the novel, they are antagonists from the beginning, and the reason for that, I think, could have been better explored. Here, Ewan McGregor is again charming and light, even though Anakin, the newly cast Hayden Christensen, is a little bit stiff. The scene should be a little more playful than it is. McGregor seems to get the tone of it, but Christensen seems to be acting in a different scene. It makes the scene where Anakin has his strop stand out a bit more, although I do think Obi-Wan is far too easy on him. Padme says Anakin will always be little Annie to her, and his acting like a petulant child doesn't endear him to the audience. When he gets to it, R.A. Salvatore follows the film almost exactly. Unlike Matt Stover's novel for Revenge of the Sith, Salvatore keeps the dialogue of the film intact. To be fair, it reads much better than it's played, coming across on the page as, again, quite charming as opposed to Hayden Christian's rather wooden and stilted style. There's an extra scene between Padme and Anakin that has an almost moonlighting-style flirty vibe to it, where she volunteers to be used as bait, but the chase with Zab Wessel is identical, with only another new scene setting up Wessel's relationship with Django Fett. Salvatore, to his credit, does write the action scenes incredibly well. Clones is the most action-orientated of the films, presumably to make up for all the mushy stuff in the midsection, and Salvatore is excellent at making the action scenes as gripping as they are in the film. Visually, the Coruscant scenes are superlative. Coruscant looks like a mashup between Japan, Times Square, Piccadilly Circus and Los Angeles 2019 as seen in Blade Runner. It says something about Obi-Wan's character that he's here lecturing Anakin about the need to guard Padme and not launch an investigation and follow the Jedi mandate to the letter, and yet when danger strikes, it's Obi-Wan that headstrongly leaps out of the window. This is especially egregious as Obi-Wan has no idea what he's doing or who he's pursuing. There are a couple of nice moments in this chase. Obi-Wan is terrified whilst Anakin is flying, whilst Anakin giggles like an excited child. Again, it's the performances that seem at odds with each other. Christensen is very leaden in his delivery, whereas McGregor is natural, or as natural as Lucas allows him to be. However, in terms of character, we still see the Anakin of childhood here, and a visual representation of the finest star pilot in the galaxy. 
There are a couple of failed attempts at humour, such as the power coupling scene and the green screening in a couple of shots give Anakin and Obi-Wan a very washed out look, but it's an exciting sequence. John Williams' score, as ever, is interesting. There doesn't seem to be any of the more melodic quality present from the other movies. This is a discordant and erratically scored scene, presumably representing Anakin's mindset. The club scene wisely doesn't try to top the cantina scene from Star Wars, but it's interesting in that, again, McGregor lets Obi-Wan lighten up. He sets Anakin the task for finding Zam Wessel while he gets himself a drink. I'd love to see some more expanded universe stories where we see the more rambunctious side of Obi-Wan, maybe out on a pub crawl with Mace Windu and a few others, having a laugh and letting his hair down. Not difficult when he's got that bad mullet. Obi-Wan strikes me as quite a fun guy to have a beer with. I particularly like the you-don't-want-to-sell-me-death-sticks line prefiguring the these-aren't-the-droids-you're-looking-for scene in Star Wars. Of course, this plays into the idea that Obi-Wan simply wasn't ready to have a Padawan learner. The Jedi learn of the threat to Padme's life, but we don't learn why she's been targeted in the film. The novel expands on this greatly, establishing her as someone who does not wish the Republic to have an army in opposition of many in the Senate. This has made her a target, as she has a lot of people who will follow what she says. By eliminating the person most opposed to a military, the opposition can show exactly why one would be necessary. Padme gives Jar Jar her voice in the Senate, a move that will ultimately lead to disaster. Padme and Anakin's scene, where he's sent to be her bodyguard, is quite creepy. Natalie Portman plays Padme as a total cold fish, and the way Anakin looks at Padme is lick. It's not a look of love or longing, it's a look of possession. It's here that the movie starts to flag a little. There's a little too many scenes of ships landing and taking off, and lovely panoramic shots of computer-generated cities, but not enough actual action. Even the novel doesn't really expand up any points from this point in the film. There's a line here, a minor scene there, but nothing on the level of Stover's novel for Sith. Stover essentially ripped the screenplay for Sith apart, and then rewrote it to make it a successful novel in its own right. Salvatore simply adapts the script. He does it very well. He adds scenes here and there for clarification. Django Fett's association with Zam Wessel is much clearer. The larger plot to kill Padme is much more developed. And the Jedi's admission that they don't actually know what bringing balance to the Force really means. But rather than being a novel like Stover's, it's a novelization. It's a good novelization, but those looking for keener insights to the characters' motivations will be disappointed. There's a cute bit with Padme being annoyed by Jar Jar, which I presume is there to reflect the audience's opinion of him, but apart from a scene in the Tuscan Raider camp that establishes Shimi is still alive, there's not much added to this part of the novel. However, the scene with Obi-Wan and Dex is fun, as it again gives the audience the idea that Obi-Wan has a life away from the Council, a life that involves having fun and drinking with his mates. In the film, Obi-Wan goes straight from Padme and Anakin to Dex, but the novel has an additional scene of Obi-Wan trying to analyse the dart through more official channels before giving up, frustrated, and going about it his own way. This 50s diner scene in the film is very reminiscent of American Graffiti, and I could totally see this as a diner in Disneyland. Dex looks okay, but I do wish filmmakers would get over using CG as a stand-in for actors. There's nothing in this scene that wouldn't have worked just as well with a regular actor rather than a computer-generated thing. Freed from having to be Anakin's mentor, Obi-Wan lightens up even more. It's notable how differently McGregor plays Obi-Wan when he's not with Anakin or with the Council. He loosens up, smiles more, and is generally more amenable and pleasant. 
When Obi-Wan goes to the Jedi archives, he's looking at a bust of Count Dooku, which I thought was interesting, and the reprise of Yoda's theme when Obi-Wan visits Yoda's class is a nice touch. Obi-Wan needing it pointing out to him that the archives may have been doctored by children learners is a little bit embarrassing. Surely Obi-Wan could have figured that out on his own. He's not stupid, especially as the, the 3D model he's looking at clearly shows the stars and such in orbit as if there were a planet there. It doesn't take a great detective genius to figure out that maybe the planet has just been deleted from the archives. These scenes and the Anakin Padme scene that separates them are what I'm talking about when I say the midsection is flabby. I think some of these scenes could have been flipped in the editing process. When Anakin and Padme arrive in Naboo, they are wearing the same clothes that they were wearing when they got off the transport earlier on, whereas the scene before this one of them eating in the diner has them wearing completely different clothes. To be honest, the eating scene could have been dropped completely for all that it adds to the film. It does establish Anakin interpreting Jedi rules through his own point of view, which becomes important in Return of the Jedi, and establishes why he doesn't think falling in love with Padme is a betrayal of the Jedi Order. There is further expansion in the novel of Padme's political leanings, and there is a scene not present in the finished film, and in the novel you can get away with lots of talking around a dinner table that may be a little bit dull in the movie. Padme seemed to suffer the most at the hands of the editors in the film, with Portman's role in Attack of the Clones being largely decorative. The scene of her and Anakin arriving on Naboo flesh out her role in Naboo's political system, and her relationship with the new queen, Jamelia and Seo Bibble, and they have a discussion about the separatist movement and what to do about it. There's also a lot of time devoted to Padme's thoughts, a hard thing to pull off in the film, I grant you. Padme is very conflicted in the novel between her duties as a senator and her feelings towards Anakin and being broody for children. If Stover's Sith novel chose to focus on Anakin's point of view, Salvatore chooses to emphasise Padme's role and her growing feelings for Anakin, one of the few people capable of making her blush, is deftly handled. Anakin has been in love with Padme from being ten, but Padme falls for Anakin during this novel quite convincingly, with some of it being physical attraction, some of it being that Anakin can protect her, and some of it being that Anakin shears somewhat forbidden fruit, which adds a certain spice to the proceedings. Neither the film nor the book explains why, to protect Padme, Anakin would take her home. Surely that's the first place anybody would look for her. Anakin and Padme's first kiss is therefore earned in the book and comes at the end of a lot of soul-searching for Padme, whereas in the film it's flat and abrupt. It doesn't help that Padme and Anakin don't seem to have any on-screen chemistry, whereas in the novel her feelings for Anakin have been developing slowly over many, many pages and scenes that aren't in the film. Portman seems to have a more easygoing and relaxed relationship with Obi-Wan in the movie, and I could see them having an illicit relationship far easier than I buy the Anakin Padme one as presented in this film. An interesting twist would have been to learn that Luke and Leia were in fact Obi-Wan's kids and he never knew it. Maybe he took Padme out for a night, showed her a good time, they got a little drunk and swore to never speak of it again. I know which one I'd rather go for a beer with. Camino is gorgeous to look at, and it seems like Lucas was hoping that the visuals would somehow compensate for how slow the movie is in this section. Obi-Wan doing his Magnum P.I. bit, trying to investigate the hows and whys and the wherefores of the disappearing planet. Naboo is also lovely, and it's here that we get Anakin's description of democracy. It's quite narrow, and Padme thinks he's kidding, which in the hands of an actor that could play subtext would have been a key scene. Sadly, we're stuck with some terribly bland delivery in what should have been a central and key moment in the movie. These scenes are also not helped by the CG, which is terrible in the moments where Anakin rides the big fat wildebeest. 
Obi-Wan interrogating Jango Fett is much better, and actually pretty cool, largely due to the actors. McGregor loads his dialogue with unspoken knowledge. Jango knows why he's there. Obi-Wan knows Jango knows why he's there. And it's clear there's a huge gulf in the difference between actors who can say one thing whilst meaning another, and actors that simply say the words. We then get more dicking about with Anakin and Padme, which is really rather dull, and it doesn't help that Anakin's seduction technique is really quite lame. When my 11-year-old daughter, who was watching this with me, thinks that Anakin is creepy, something's going a little bit wrong with your teen idol. In the novel, Kamino progresses as it does in the film, although there is a greater feeling of unease on Obi-Wan's part that the Jedi are manufacturing clones, something that I felt Mr. Lucas glossed over in the film. Surely the Jedi would be horrified at this prospect. It is, after all, slavery. But the Jedi seem to have no problem with it in this film, or Sith. In the novel, Obi-Wan is repulsed by the idea, and this, I felt, was more in keeping with his character. Salvatore also does a good job of amping up the tension in the aforementioned scenes between Obi-Wan and Jango Fett, despite barely changing a single line between them. Jango and Boba's relationship is also much deeper than in the film, with Boba being shown to be quite the prodigy when it comes to weapons and tactics. What the novel doesn't make any clearer is Sifo Dias's role in the proceedings. The Comenians seem to think that he hired them to create the clone army over ten years ago, but he died around that time, we are informed by Obi-Wan. Django says he knows nothing about Sifo-Dyas, and was in fact hired by Lord Tyrannus, who we later discover is a pseudonym for Dooku. Yoda and Mace Windu are also confused about the whys and the wherefores of this situation, and there's even an implication that they are losing touch with the Force, and they debate whether to tell anyone, but ultimately decide against it. However, when the clone army arrives later on, Dooku is surprised. So who did order the clone army? Obviously it was Palpatine, but it's very clever how he's made it look to an outsider like the Jedi arranged everything. That being said, it's not terribly well spelled out in the film and is actually a rather confusing loose end. The next main diversion from the film concerns Padme again. The scenes with Anakin and Padme on Naboo are a lot more detailed. We get a lot more backstory on Padme's family and the lovely addition of Padme's sister, Sola. It's Sola who can clearly see that Adkin and Padme are falling for each other. It's a very sensitively handled scene between Padme and Sola, and Salvatore does a much better job of fleshing it out than in the film. There's an interesting idea explored as well, that Padme is the one who feels that she is forbidden from a physical relationship rather than Anakin, whose body language and demeanour clearly betray his feelings. As with Stover's novel, the relationship between the two feels more real, even though in Salvatore's case he uses a lot of the same dialogue. In the film, Anakin going after Shimi is rather abrupt, but we finally get some more action and it's a great scene, really showing what Obi-Wan can do. Anakin going after Shimi is quite abrupt in the film, although it's fleshed out a lot more in the novel. We finally get some more action back on Kamino in the movie, and it's a great scene, really showing what Obi-Wan can do. Granted, he does exactly what he tells Anakin to not do, i.e. he loses his lightsaber, but this action beat was a long time coming, and it's thankfully really well done. McGregor even gets to play Obi-Wan's sardonic humour. Oh, not good, when he realises that his trick against Jango was backfired against him. Anakin returns to Tatooine to locate Shimi, and this scene plays out much more friendly than in the book, where Anakin is openly contemptible of Watu and dismisses him out of hand once he's got the information he requires. He even considers gutting him with his lightsaber, and the slavery angle is played up a lot more in the book. One of the complaints about The Phantom Menace is that Anakin's slave life seems to be quite comfortable, and the book does mention that Watu seemed to have a soft spot for Anakin and Shimi. 
doesn't really excuse it, but... The asteroid sequence with Obi-Wan is visually stunning, one of the best action scenes in a Star Wars film. It plays out with some great sound effects and no music. The impression I got from the scenes with Django, though, are that he's not quite as good as he's cracked up to be. He screws up quite considerably in letting Obi-Wan keep the Kamino dart. He lets Obi-Wan see his armour in the apartment on Kamino. He almost gets his head handed to him in hand-to-hand confrontation. And he doesn't check to see if Obi-Wan is really dead. This also may explain why Boba Fett isn't quite as good as his reputation suggests as well. Back on Tatooine, Lucas then completely forgets the tenets of storytelling with show Don't Tell. Kleeg tells Anakin about Shimi, and Kleeg in the movie comes across as someone who basically throws his arms up and says, ah, well, I guess she's dead there. Whereas in the book, we get the feeling that it's killing him to have to stay and not Luke for her. John Williams brings back Luke's theme to good effect, and also brings back Duel of the Fates, but with a much harder edge, which is also very well done. Anakin's shadow appearing to be that of Darth Vader is a nice visual touch. But the whole Shimi Skywalker scenes are given exceptionally short shrift in the movie, and I can't help but think these scenes, one of the key developments in Anakin's turn to the dark side, perhaps could have been expanded upon more. Those scenes at the Lars homestead do throw Star Wars into some confusion. Does Owen Lars not remember C-3PO and R2-D2? Did Luke never ask about the other gravestone on the Lars plot? Yoda and Mace Windu also sense Anakin's pain, but they never seem to follow up on it. Given that neither of these wanted to train Anakin in the first place, and Mace Windu especially has been openly suspicious of Anakin's balance of the Force prophecy, one would have thought that they would have been more suspicious, although there's a nice use of the Imperial March. The later scene with Anakin and Padme is god-awful, not so much in the writing as Salvatore proves in his novel, but in the delivery, direction and acting. Why Anakin blames Obi-Wan for the death of his mother is never clearly explained other than petulance. It's really the score that works best here, with Williams bringing in a lot of recognisable cues to good effect, but Portman barely reacts at all to Anakin's claim of killing women and children, and even here, her affection for him is chaste and supportive rather than that of a loved one. The novel doesn't really handle these scenes any better. Anakin still comes across as very much as a whiny, petulant child in the scenes following the death of Shimi, and other than the fact that Anakin has broad shoulders, apparently a huge turn-on for Padme, these scenes are still cloying in the novel. Again, as in the film, Anakin's confession to murdering women and children, whom he admits do not fight in the book, should have elicited a more impassioned response from noted peace-lover Padme than, ah, well, you were angry, it don't matter. As if in evidence to what I said earlier, Christopher Lee exudes menace without any CG enhancements, and I think more of Dooku would not have gone amiss. The film lacks having a clear adversary. Phantom Menace had a ticking bomb in the form of Darth Maul, and this film lacks that. Despite the threat of death hanging over Padme's head, there's no clear bad guy pushing the Jedi forward or informing their moves. The Jedi are clueless for most of the film, and even the reveal of who was after killing Padme doesn't reveal why. Christopher Lee, however, totally sells his big moment, and tries to convince Obi-Wan that he's right, mainly because everything he tells Obi-Wan is actually true, from a certain point of view. I could have done without the dialogue parallels to The Empire Strikes Back, but McGregor seems to relish getting to act against a real actor, one of stature and power, rather than acting against Christensen or a CG creation. Portman does finally get to show some grit as Padme, when the Jedi forbid Anakin from going after Obi-Wan, and she retorts with, well, I'm going after Obi-Wan, and the Jedi told you to protect me, so to do that, you're going to have to come with me, aren't you? 
This does lend fuel to my idea that she and Obi-Wan had a night of never-to-be-mentioned-again passion somewhere, as she's had very little contact with him, as I can recall. Palpatine accepting power is all Jar Jar's fault, so everyone was right to hate him, and when you look at the entire prequel trilogy, you begin to appreciate how well-orchestrated his plan was. I'm still not clear why Anakin and Padme take C-3PO with them, though, when they leave Tatooine. The plot of the book makes much more sense than the plot of the film, which desperately tries to cram an awful lot in, but only succeeds in giving a short shrift of certain elements. The novel is also very anti-politicians. Both Obi-Wan and Anakin confess to a dislike, or at the very least a disinterest, in people who seek political office. In the movie, this pretty much amounts to one line from Obi-Wan, but in the novel it's much more blatant. There's even a moment with Mace Windu and Yoda where it's described that they see firsthand the petty bureaucracy that gets in the way of true progress. As with all novelizations, how much of a free hand Salvatore was given is unknown, but I kind of think that this was there in the script. Lucas is no longer the idealist he was in the 70s. Running his own business has probably exposed him to far more underhanded political manoeuvrings than back then. The prequels are a lot more politically motivated, and the novels even more so, where Palpatine's machinations can be allowed to breathe a little more. There's great irony, as in the film, but more pronounced in the novel, that Padme, speaking through Jar Jar, gives Palpatine the power he so desperately craves, and the clone army gives the Republic the military force she was so against. I would have liked to have seen this explored further. After her kangaroo trial with the Nemoidians, Padme even expresses regret that she was lenient to them after the Battle of Naboo, and it's fitting that Anakin will kill all of them in Sith, even if he's not explicitly doing it in Padme's name. The rest of the novel and the film are pretty much acting in tandem. There's an added line here, an extra character beat there, but for the most part no information is added that is new. Salvatore does a good job with this book, and it's certainly not boring, and he has a good command of action, always necessary when writing Star Wars. It's not as good a novel in its own right as Sith, but it's a good read, and it's recommended. Genosis is again visually stunning, but the C-3PO stuff is even more irritating than the Jar Jar material in Episode 1. It's more annoying, I think, because it's completely unnecessary. Humour, when used correctly, can alleviate a tense situation, but the Padme-Anakin moments are pretty exciting and dynamic if a little cluttered, so adding 3PO's juvenile comic relief really doesn't work, especially as none of it's funny. I mean, maybe kids thought it was, but... It's also interesting to note that all droids in the Star Wars universe seem to be plug-and-play. I will admit that Christensen does play the scene where he gets his lightsaber hilt cut in half very well, a genuine moment of humour in an otherwise tense scene. Another beautiful moment is Anakin telling Obi-Wan they came to rescue him. McGregor's expression when he looks up at his still manacled hands is glorious, especially when he follows it up with the wonderfully sardonic, good job. Seeing Padme steal a lockpick is also a lovely touch, as it also demonstrates her intelligence. This entire arena sequence suffers from a little too much CG, but I like it for the most part. The tons of Jedi arriving is really quite exciting, although Mace Windu sneaks up on Dooku and doesn't just kill him, which seems quite short-sighted. Killing Django makes him pretty badass, especially he doesn't even break a sweat doing it, but Django himself is again useless. Speaking of badass, Obi-Wan is inordinately cool with his lightsaber moves, and Padme gets to show why Leia is a chip off the old block. Padme's costume sadly doesn't get ripped nearly enough for my liking, though. After I've just complained about Padme's intelligence being downplayed, I just made a sexist comment. <laughs> Forgive me, lovely listener. Another point worth mentioning, though, is that the Jedi don't seem too bothered that an army rocks up out of nowhere when it benefits them. The lightsaber battle between Dooku and Obi-Wan, and then Dooku and Anakin, isn't quite as epic as it should be. 
Anakin's impatience cost them this battle as he rushes off without listening to Obi-Wan. Had he done so, together they may have taken him, but instead Dooku owns both of them. Lucas seems to realise it's not quite as grand as it should be and gives Anakin two lightsabers, which is cool, but Anakin and Obi-Wan are so hopelessly outclassed the battle drums up no real excitement. However, Yoda entering the scene changes all of this. Even in the typically reserved British cinema screen, there was a gasp of excitement when Yoda took to the stage and ignited his lightsaber. Personally, I think it's a lot of fun, albeit very brief. It's a little incestuous when we learn Yoda instructed Dooku, who instructed Qui-Gon, who instructed Obi-Wan, who instructed Anakin, as we therefore led to believe that there's something wrong with Yoda's teaching, ultimately, which led to a number of Jedi who prized individuality of spirit above the letter of the Jedi law. This also sets up how good Yoda is, though, and therefore how good Palpatine must be in Sith, in terms of clashing with lightsabers. Although, again, Jedi hubris prevents them from heeding Obi-Wan's warning that a Sith Lord is in control of the Senate. It all culminates in Anakin and Padme's wedding, and we're left with a sense that the movie was all set up for Episode 3, but set up for stuff we won't actually get to see. Lucas's decision to spin the Clone Wars off into its own series impacted on the contents of Sith. Ultimately, Attack of the Clones isn't as good as Revenge of the Sith. It's not as focused in what it's trying to do. Lots of loose ends exist and are never tied off, even in the sequel movie. Why the Separatists are trying to kill Padwin is never answered in the film, although the novel does tie this up. Anakin and Padme's relationship is burly fleshed out. They fall in love because they have to, not because it's organic in any way. Being too ambitious is no bad thing, and upon reading the novel you realise there's nothing actually wrong with the story Lucas is telling. It's quite compelling, really, but he fails in getting across all the points that are clearly there. The film is also far too long, clocking in at a whopping 2 hours and 22 minutes on the Blu-ray, and could easily have lost half an hour with some trimming and rearranging. Ewan McGregor is still the most valuable player, making Obi-Wan a compelling study in contradictions, and the film is gorgeous to look at. But eventually just looking at something grows tiresome, and a little more brain food is needed. Attack of the Clones is in no way bad. I'd rather watch this than any Pirates of the Caribbean movie, but it's not a forgotten masterpiece by any stretch. It has its moments, but it needed a severe script overhaul and dialogue polish. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that little ramble. I know that I did. I enjoyed watching Attack of the Clones again very much. I think I enjoyed the book more, even though the book isn't as impressive as the novel to Revenge of the Six. Revenge of the Six? <laughs> is that the sequel to the Magnificent Seven? And then the bottom line with Attack of the Clones is that the Jedi are clearly setting themselves up for a fall. They're intractable, immovable, and don't want to be seen as weak. And their inaction ultimately causes Palpatine to be able to get his feet under the table, as he will in Revenge of the Sith. Gene Hendricks will probably appreciate this next comment, though. Attack of the Clones is a good movie, if you read the book. Speaking of Gene, Gene emailed into the show, called Prisoner of the Palace, which I presume is related to the last episode, where I talked about The Prisoner. Andy, I've enjoyed your Palace of Glittering Delight shows, even if I disagree with some of your points, as shown on Facebook. And I really enjoyed your Prisoner show. Well, the first thing with that, Gene, I don't mind people disagreeing. It really doesn't bother me. In fact, a good disagreement can often be just as fun as people agreeing with you. I think the thing is, it's not to be taken personally. You can not like Revenge of the Sith as much as you want, you know? and we will be civil in our discussions of it. I don't, I'm never going to diss on somebody just because they like something I don't, and vice versa, so that's fine. 
Jean continues, this is one of those shows that I have never seen, like Space 1999 and UFO, that you're making me want to seek out. And I would like to just say one thing about that. Stop it! You're making me want to watch these shows, like Luke Giaconetti's made me want to watch Ultraman, and I just don't have the time. Stop being so damn persuasive about it. Next thing you know, you'll be doing something on Quantum Leap, which I've only seen a few episodes of, and that made me want to go and watch them as well. It's funny you should mention Quantum Leap. Uh, that's from Gene, who hosts the Hammer Strikes, the Quantum Cast, and I think that's it. Do you do another one, Gene? I do apologise if I missed it. But both of those are available here on the Two True Freaks Network. Is that enough pimpage? for one week. I thank you for emailing in, G. Like I said, I don't mind people disagreeing with me. I don't have a problem with people disagreeing with me at all. Uh, another email, Prisoner of Glittering Delights, was from Chris and Cindy Franklin. Andy! I don't know that it was from Cindy. It's a running gag now. You have intrigued me. I have never watched a single episode of The Prisoner despite hearing about it for well over 25 years. It was never heard anywhere near me during my youth, to my knowledge. I think I first learned about it when DC heavily advertised a comic book sequel in the late 80s. I did know it was pretty whacked out, and your episode has proven that. But it has me very interested in watching it. I've always liked McGowan, despite never seeing his two most famous series, This and Danger Man. I first met him in Disney's Scarecrow of Romany Marsh miniseries, when Disney Channel re-heard it during the 80s. I'm still quite fond of that one, and wish Disney would release it on DVD. Look forward to your defence of episode two, since you so eloquently defended Revenge of the Sith. Uh, well, I hope you enjoyed it, Chris. I don't think it was anywhere near as as effective as Sith. I don't think Attack of the Clones is as good a film. It has good moments, but I don't think it's as good as an entertaining piece of work. The book's good, though. I think we've established. Our next email is from Luke Giaconetti. The Prisoner. No, not the prequel to The Fugitive. <laughs> Harrison Ford as Patrick McGowan's role, that'd be quite funny. Number 44. I suspected deep down that an episode covering The Prisoner would not be too far along the queue once Palace got underway properly. Your discussion of it back in the Top 10 TV Shows episode only solidified that suspicion. And so, here we are. I've written to you before about how a lot of these shows, which you discovered as a young man, were similarly discovered by me as a young man, albeit through reruns primarily on the Sci-Fi Channel. The Prisoner was one of these shows, but unlike other shows which show this origin for me, The Prisoner was one which was just too extreme and out there for me to make much sense of. When I got to college, my friends and dormitory neighbour Mac was a fan of the show, but even he said that parts of it were just obscure and purposely obtuse. But despite all that, the show has remained a minor fascination for me over the years, despite it being off of TV for quite a while and only occasionally brought up in discussions of classic science fiction. It addresses issues of identity, control, totalitarianism and liberty, all topics of interest to me and even more complicated today than they were in the 60s. Number 60's anger is easy to identify with and the idea of his foe being an ever-changing, essentially faceless bureaucrat who seemingly does stuff just to screw with Number 6 and bring him into line resonates strongly in 20. 14, especially here in the West, with concepts of political correctness, so-called thought police, the role of government in our personal lives, and the actual cost of freedom. But the show clearly made an impression amongst those in the know. If The Simpsons does a gag based on your show, you must be fairly well known, and said Simpsons gag involving March being chased by Rover is hilarious. And of course there is not one, but two Iron Maiden songs based on the series, The Prisoner and Back in the Village. As I have begun to check certain items off my geek bucket list, just checked off Amazing Spider-Man issue 121, woo, I keep finding new things to add or re-add to the list, and The Prisoner is one of them. Thanks, number 49, Luke Giaconetti. Well, check it out, Luke. Let me know what you think. I'm always interested in hearing people's reaction to The Prisoner. 
because it is quite polarizing. I mean, I said in that show that Fallout is just insane and does not hold together in any narrative way at all, but is oddly compelling, and it's very strange and, and unusual. Another email about the prisoner came from Timothy Elliott, who basically just says, Take no prisoners. Hello, Andy. Great show on the prisoner. I must confess I never warmed up to the show, and as a result it never held my attention. However, your enthusiasm is infectious, and I will have to re-evaluate Mr. McGowan's handiwork. I will update you on my findings. Keep the shows coming. Thanks, Tim Elliott. And again, you're very welcome, Tim. Again, let me know if you actually get round to watching The Prisoner, what you think of it. As I said, very polarising, very interesting to hear what other people say about it. Well, that about wraps it up for another episode. I can still be emailed on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. And if you want to promote the show in whatever fashion you see fit, mention it on yours, giving us an iTunes review, whatever all the cool kids are doing that promotes podcasts nowadays. I will make a trail of one day. I presume. Thank you for joining me. Uh, I don't know, we've got a couple of things lined up for what could be next, but it could be anything, as far as I know. Take care. Bye-bye.